Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hi, Sam. How's it going? Hey, Laurie. I'm all right. Thank you. And how are you? Over the jet lag? Over the jet lag, yes. I've just returned from London and had a nice stay there with my boyfriend, Callum, for about seven, eight days. We were staying with friends. But importantly for our listeners, we traveled up to Cambridge last Saturday and met up with you, Sam, at your alma mater. <laughs> my alma mater, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how nice it was to see you. I know. We had a great time in Cambridge, and I can't fail to mention that apart from having some couple of drinks at some nice pubs and having you walk us around your beautiful campus, we went punting. Do you want to describe for some listeners here in the U.S. that might not know what punting is, what it's all about? Oh my God, how how do I describe punting? So you've got to imagine. (laughs) First of all, it takes place on the river. That is the crucial information. And it's a kind of boating, but it's a, a long, low, flat wooden boat that can fit about six people sitting down and one person standing on the back with a long pole because the river that goes through Cambridge, the Cam, is pretty shallow. So you can put your pole down and touch the bottom of the river and push off from it and propel the boat forwards. And it's a lot of fun. You get to pass by some beautiful parts of Cambridge. There's a a famous stretch of the river looking onto what they call the backs, which are lots of the old colleges that you can see from the river. But it's not entirely straightforward, I would say, doing the the actual punting action. (laughs) Well, when we were on the river, I guess it was about three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, gorgeous day, and it was very, very crowded. So these boats are not the easiest vehicle to kind of maneuver and go in and out of tight places. It was a little bit of a maze. Yeah. <laughs> and so we we set your boyfriend, Callum, he did some of the punting and under very high pressure circumstances, I would say. <laughs> weaving in and out of all these people and it's not just that there's a lot of people it's just that a lot of people also don't know how to punt or haven't done it before so everyone's going in every kind of direction on this narrow and crowded stretch of river and he he did pretty great let's put it on the record now that he did a good job (laughs) you did pretty great too although I think Callum was quite afraid that he was going to fall into the river cam which would have been interesting in and of itself we didn't see anyone fall in the river but I was very happy that I was just sitting in the boat because (laughs) it looked really tricky to keep your balance and there's no way that I could have even attempted to steer that boat yeah it was it was a fun experience and wow the scenery just uh, just amazing what a pretty, pretty campus Cambridge is. And so, so very old, just ancient compared to anything we can imagine in the U.S., I'm sure. <laughs> That's the thing that really impresses Americans. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it is old. And yeah, it's very beautiful. I was very lucky to be able to go there. Well, we were very lucky to have you as our official tour guide. And you also took us, we couldn't go inside, but to the Cambridge University Library, which was impressive. Yeah, that is an amazing, huge building. It looks a bit like a great big power station 
not coincidentally, because it was designed by a, an architect who designed lots of power stations here in the UK. And yeah, it's an amazing temple of learning. It has in its stacks every book that is published in the UK is sent there essentially and has been for for a long, long time. So it has everything for the last hundred years or so. I was I was quite impressed with your story about once forgetting to send that library a copy of one of the books that Galley Beggar Press published and you told me that they contacted you. Yeah. Yeah, well, we sent it. I don't know if we forgot as much as sent it a bit late, but yeah, we we got a letter from the. So you have to send until recently. In fact, you had to send three copies of every book. So one went to the Cambridge Library, one went to Oxford, one went to the British Library, and now you can send them e-books. So kind of sadly, they don't all get paper copies of everything. I don't think anymore. But yeah, we were a little bit late, and they sent us a reminder. I just can't imagine the administrative staff that keeps track of what's come in and what hasn't for just all of those books that are published all over the country. It's quite something. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's quite a place. Well, apart from hanging out in Cambridge with you, Sam, I did a lot of bookstore shopping Good in London. And I think I brought back almost somewhere around 15 books. It was <laughs> it was incredible. I was leaving behind shoes and everything else so I could bring the books home. Pretty ridiculous. But I got some great things. I went to some really the iconic bookstores, Daunt and London Review of Books. But this time I also went to quite a few used bookstores in and around London and Bloomsbury and other places and really picked up some nice stuff that I'm looking forward to reading. So what are the highlights? I was hoping you would ask. (laughs) I picked up two books by an author that I really love, Ivy Compton Burnett. Do you know her? I Well, I know the name, but I haven't read anything. Well, New York Review of Books here in the States published two of her novels. She wrote in the, mostly like in the period 1920 to 1950s-ish, but I picked up two that I don't think are published in the States. One is called More Women Than Men, and the other is Daughters and Sons. And I love her writing because she writes almost entirely in dialogue. There's like no exposition. It's sly, witty stuff, kind of like an upstairs, downstairs thing where the wealthy socialites are really kind of, although they think they're sophisticated, they're really kind of bumbling and clueless. It's the staff that is working in these big estates that kind of knows what the real deal is between all of them and all of their relationships. And she's just really, really snarky in her writing. And it's it's a lot of fun. What else did I buy? Oh, I can't, I kind of came to the conclusion that I think that British book covers are just better than American. Really? Yes. Whoa. I was <laughs> that's controversial. I was I mean, looking I'm happy to agree. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at a lot of books. And it's like, wow, that cover is fabulous. And I, I kind of re- showed some restraint in not buying books just that I already had just because I liked the cover better. But I did buy a Murakami book, The Wind Up Bird Chronicle, that I did, don't have a copy of. But it was a vintage classics UK version that the cover is fin- fantastic. It's in paperback. So I'm kind of jealous of your covers. What else? Oh, Ian Banks. Uh, When I was in London, The Guardian did 
one of their great profiles on authors and they do this like where to start series. You're probably familiar with it, mm-hmm. Sam. Maybe you've even written some of those in the past. But so Ian Banks, the Scottish author who died at a very young age, I think back in 2013. I don't know. Some of his stuff, I I think he, he wrote a lot of science fiction. I've never read him, but I picked up two of his non-science fiction books. Are you familiar with him? Oh, yeah. I, I love him. Yeah, he's great. Oh. He did write science fiction, which is really good. And also, yeah, non-science fiction. So what have you picked up? I picked up Complicity. Okay, I haven't read that one. These were all like in the, you know, the Guardian recommends on him. And then The Crow Road. Oh, yes. I read that a long time ago. Yes. Okay. That's going to be good. It starts, the first sentence is something like, today my grandmother exploded. (laughs) (laughs) They're at the funeral of the grandmother at the crematorium. I don't know. But yeah, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Oh, what else did I buy? I, I bought some books from small publishers. I didn't buy any Galley Beggar Press books because I'm a proud subscriber of Galley Beggar Press. So I get all of those in the mail anyway. I bought a book published by Weatherglass Books. Oh, great. Our good friend Neil Griffiths um, called The Blue Woman. I bought, oh, I bought the, the this year's winner of the Dublin Literary Award. It's called, the book's called Marzan Monamore. It's by a German author, Katja Oskamp, translated by Joe Heinrich. And it's published by Piran Press. I think I'm pronouncing that right, perhaps. Maybe I'm not. Ah, do you know, this is embarrassing because I really should know how to say this. I've always thought it's Pirene Press. Okay, perhaps it is. Anyway. I'm not certain about that at all. Anyway, they're, they're a very good publisher. Let's get that in. Yes. We can't say their name. I always think that the Dublin Literary Award does a good job. I like reading the books that win that prize. Picked up some books by Philip Henscher. Great. Do you read him? Yes, I like Philip Henscher. Yeah, he's he's good. And he's very funny, very evocative descriptions of, of the UK, particularly. Yeah. So I, I picked up The Mulberry Empire and also Scenes from an Early Life by him. Oh, I picked up a really neat book looking book called The Anonymous Novel, Sensing the Future by an Italian author, Alessandro Barbero, translated by Alan Cameron. And this is a novel about Russia. The publisher is Vagabond Voices out of Glasgow. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm really going all over the place with these small presses. And I I just loved going into the used bookstores. It was so fun, not just because you don't pay as much, but just looking at the collections and some of the stuff that was there. I don't know. I I really sometimes wish I could just like transfer my life to like Bloomsbury. That would be nice (laughs) in the midst of all of that literary history and all of those books. That would be quite lovely if I could afford it. Yeah, Bloomsbury is very nice unfortunately unaffordable as you say (laughs) for most of us mortals well anyway the trip was a blast and seeing you in cambridge was definitely the highlight and i got some definitely a suitcase full of souvenirs and so how heavy was your suitcase it was heavy i mean (laughs) these were all paperbacks but still it was heavy i couldn't put it in the overhead to come home (laughs) kellum had to help me but it was worth it it was well worth it it was well worth all that stuff that i left behind shoes that i threw away etc it's all about the books man (laughs) all right sam talk to you later good to speak to you bye laurie Across the Pond listeners, we have a real treat for you today. We have with us Stephanie Bishop, who's going to be speaking with us about her new novel, The Anniversary. Lovely to be here. 
We're very happy to have you. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your novel? And I think you're going to read a short passage for us as well. Sure. So uh, the setup for this novel, which is, is kind of context for what I'm going to read. So the anniversary is narrated by the character of JB, who is a novelist. She's married to a very famous film director, Patrick, and they are coming up to their 14th wedding anniversary. Things have been a little rocky in their marriage, and to make amends, she proposes that they take a cruise. On the cruise, a storm hits, Patrick falls overboard, and the novel unfolds against the backdrop into the investigation of his death, during which we learn the truth about their marriage and, I suppose, the way in which her art is is implicated uh, in his accident. So the part that I'm going to read, they are on the cruise ship, and this is just as the storm hits. The storm was sudden and extreme. No one had predicted the size of the waves, 10 metres, with winds up to 80 kilometres per hour. So they told me later. I had just picked up my drink when the furniture started sliding from one side of the room to the other. There was the sound of glass breaking, people screaming. Tables and potted plants crashed first into one wall, then the next. I held on to whatever I could. Benches, a pillar in the centre of the room. Outside, there was the flash of lightning. Then everything went quiet, very still. I could hear a woman crying. I crawled towards Patrick, clinging to the broken furniture. People were starting to stand and brush themselves off. Patrick had been slammed back against the wall when the storm first struck. And now, as I reached to help him, he pushed me away. He scrambled to his feet and started to head back to the bar. Then, all of a sudden, he collapsed into an armchair and closed his eyes. I had taken my anti-nausea pills, but Patrick had not, and the storm, mixed with the alcohol, overwhelmed him. A moment later, he pushed himself up to standing. I think I'm going to be sick, he said, as he stumbled towards the deck, the ship tilting this way and that. The door was unlocked. I saw him shove it open and step out into the darkness. What was he thinking? I watched him for a moment wondering if I should go to help, knowing he'd prefer to throw up on his own because he never liked anyone around when he was sick or feeble. I'd hurt myself when the storm first struck and felt a little stunned. Then the ship listed again, more violently this time, and I heard Patrick calling to me. JB, he called, as he liked to call me, using not my real name, but my middle initials under which I published. JB, come out. JB, his voice cut through the noise of the storm as it had always been able to cut through anything. The sound of glasses shattering, the sight of the looming dark waves outside, and then water crashing down over the railings. I followed him. As I reached the door, I lost my balance, slipping on the wet floor. Outside, the night was cold and the ocean loud. I found him bent over, one hand clinging to the railings. I went towards him, but he brushed me away. Only once before had I seen him vomit from drunkenness. Generally. I discouraged him from drinking more than a glass or two. While it made others relaxed and convivial, after a few drinks he would get cranky, or maybe tetchy is the word, sometimes mad. And so I'd often quietly draw his glass towards me, and, while he was talking, finish it myself. The storm was getting worse. Patrick, I called, what are you doing? You've got to get inside. I reached out to him, but he pushed my hand away. Some dark change had come over him when I didn't understand. He lifted his face towards me then and said something he perhaps would not have said were he not so drunk, something he must have been storing up, something he must have been trying not to say, something he must have thought of frequently, but at intervals, something terrible, 
that I would later try to forget. So we meet Patrick at, let's call it a low ebb here. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but initially at first, he seems like someone who JP really loves and admires. So I wonder if you could paint a portrait of him at his best and why <laughs> she might like him in that way. Yeah, so he was her professor when she was a young student. That was how they met. So she would have been in her early 20s and he was is, was much older than her uh, in his 40s. So the early scenes when we see what that relationship was, it was one of idolisation, really. There was a sort of cultish atmosphere to Patrick, which stayed with him, you know, as he grew older, perhaps even increased. And JB really fell under the power of that intellectual and kind of creative aura that Patrick had. She became, in a way, he he enabled her career in many respects. She was almost, in, in a certain sense, a kind of apprentice under his intellectual and kind of creative guidance. And after a time, that started to grate, I think, and she kind of tried to break free of that mould and you see their relationship turning as her own kind of artistic achievement matches, if not starts to exceed Patrick's own. So she she does, what's the best way of saying it? I mean, she, she really thrives, it seems, at least from the outside. It looks like she's doing really well and... She's, you know, as as well as this husband she loves and admires, she has her individual success and more and more of it. She's beautiful as well. And it feels like she has everything in a way. But uh, but does she? I guess is the big question. It's, it's an interesting question. I think that's a question she's trying to grapple with in some ways that on the surface of things, from the outside, that is how it appears. And she's very aware that that is how the public perceives her as an artist, how it perceives them in their marriage. And there is this kind of secret side going on in terms of the competition between them, the secrets they harbour from one another. And and I guess over the course of the novel, the, the kind of undercurrents of that start to break through the surface. There are fundamental things that she's deeply unhappy about, but it takes time, I think, for her to understand what those things are over the history of her marriage, the decisions she'd made about her life in relation to Patrick. There is a really strong collaboration between these two. Yeah. And I think that in some ways, Patrick benefits from JB's input as much as she his. But there's also this really kind of, I think, feminist streak in JB. And in the opening chapters where we learn that JB has just won a very prestigious literary prize, And she comments that one of the blurbs on the book is that um, her novel possesses a bracing lack of sentimentality. (laughs) And we kind of get from her conscious thoughts that she really is longing for, I think, some type of, I think you call it artistic authority, something that I think that she's a bit jealous of Patrick for just kind of having and maybe assuming and not even having to work very hard for it. And I was really struck by some of the things that she says about what it takes to be considered a serious female writer. She describes it as the ultimate corseting of the female novelist. The woman's woman's victory is marked by a definition in the negative, by the idea of an absence, unflinching, unsentimental, uncompromising rather than being labeled for what it is, tough, hard-headed, gritty, piercing, robust, 
muscular, searing, bold, etc. All those positives that are given to men. Women are defined against the expectations of our sex, the assumed lack. Tell us about that. I think it's fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in a sense, that's the premise for the book, really, in terms of where I was writing from. To come back to the earlier part of the question and, and get arrive, finish off there. I mean, yes, there is incredible collaboration between JB and Patrick. And I think she feels as though her role in his success has never been acknowledged. And she starts to really resent that. But there is a very strong feeling on her part that he's been granted a certain authority in public culture that he didn't have to work for, that was kind of granted given to him purely on the basis of him being a man, essentially, and that she wasn't permitted or or wasn't granted the same kind of uh, authority or recognition. Her work wasn't taken as seriously uh, along gender lines. So this is something that she really resents uh, and, and kind of blames Patrick for not stepping up to acknowledge her role in his own art, for him claiming his art for himself when she played such a large part in it. In terms of the... The section that you quote, which is, that's the moment where she gives her speech at the prize ceremony. I kind of wrote the book really from a position early on of feeling extraordinarily angry at the way women's art was being received broadly in the culture. And not just women's writing, but multiple different kinds of art forms, Uh, the way it's positioned, the language that's assigned to it, the level of work that has to go into proving that authority in many ways, I wanted to kind of write against that notion that we see so often where a male author is is kind of preordained as a genius before they've hardly published anything, and you never see the kind of opposite happening along um, gender lines. And I felt incredibly angry at, at the language that was being attached to women's work or the way in which it was being minimised or domesticated, the way in which certain subjects were treated as subjects of eminent seriousness when written about by men and somehow domesticated and made small and less significant when the same subjects were written about by women. So I wanted to create a character that could think through these issues and interrogate that experience to think about that relationship between women's art, the reception of that, the debate around the power associated with with the gendered art lines, to think about that in the context of her domestic life and look at that in terms of how that's being played out or received in public culture. She could straddle both of those lines in the space of the novel. Yeah, and there are there are really this this struggle between being perceived as too feminine or not feminine enough is also something that she experiences in her personal and intimate relationship with her husband Patrick. Yeah, and it's interesting when they first get together She's very much the younger partner, the inexperienced figure that he takes under his wing as if to educate in all manner of things. And she accepts that quite willingly at that point and feels herself to be you know, quite a feminine partner in terms of how their relationship plays out. Their gender roles are quite distinct at that point. And as her own achievements increase, she starts to push back against that and to refuse certain experiences or certain roles that might normally be associated with the feminine partner. And Patrick resents this and, you know, judges her quite harshly for that refusal because she chooses her art 
against other things, decides that that will be the primary force in her life. And that if Patrick can choose this, why can't she? But there is significant fallout for her without giving too much away. There is fallout for her in terms of what it, what it costs her to make that decision, both in terms of her broader life, in her public life, but also in terms of what happens in that marriage when she says no to certain things. So it's really interesting to hear you talking about how she creates herself in a way as a character, as a person and as a writer. And of course, you had to create her as a character and as a writer. And I wonder if you could, you could tell us a bit about that. And you also had to develop a style for her in a way or give her give us a sense of how she wrote and what she wrote about and can you tell us a bit about that and how that maybe collided with your own writing or you felt it was very different to what you do as an author Mm, that's a really interesting question I have a kind of long-standing interest in life writing which sort of sits just outside of what I think of as think of what I do as a novelist when this book started to emerge, it kind of came about as a collision between what I was thinking about in life writing and my interest in life writing and what I was thinking about coming off the back of a a very different kind of novel that I recently finished. And I was really interested in that question of the fictionality inherent in how we tell our life stories, how we edit or revise our life stories, the kinds of truths we think we know but can't quite narrate, can't quite see, don't know how to tell them in the context of our broader life narrative. And I was trying to develop a character who was a, she needed to be a writer in a way to tackle the kind of political cultural issues that I wanted her to be engaged with. But she also needed to be a writer in order to be able to very self-consciously manipulate her own life story. So she is from the start fabricating and constructing her narrative in a kind of partial fictional autobiography, you might think of. So she's not giving us a narrative that is her style as a novelist. She's quite deliberately giving us a narrative that is her telling us her history in her kind of biographical historical mode. So we never actually know what her writing looks like. She describes her writing to us But her way of telling her life is not her literary style. And she's quite clear about this, that this is is my life, this is how I'm telling my life and I can tell you what my writing is like and I can tell you how it's being critically assessed. But there is quite a divide between those things most of the time until her narrative gets a bit wobbly and she starts to be uncertain about where the line between fiction and, and reality sits. For me, though, her character really kind of came about as a collision between questions around life writing and life narratives and questions around fictionality what happens when you kind of throw the two together. It was really important to me that as a first person narrator, there was something very immediate to her voice. Not exactly confessional, because I don't think she knows her own story from the beginning. She kind of gets to that point, but something that was aiming to be very immediate, that was aiming to be quite intimate, even if it wasn't always wholly truthful. And that voice had to be something that was sort of, for me, trying to move away from questions of literary style in the way I had been thinking about them for other books, where style was quite paramount and quite constructed and part of something fictional. This was something where she was deliberately trying to discard that to get to a different kind of voice where she could tell her story. Well, maybe I'll I'll push you on that a little bit because there was a, a passage in the book where JB is talking about this 
prize-winning book. And and in her mind, it's quite different stylistically from her previous work. She describes it as expansive and digressive. The sentences, languorous, multi-jointed, threaded through with double and triple thoughts. I felt the thick ribbing of their musculature, the weave, tendon, and tissue. I felt the strength of this pulsating, tugging, lifting, and bending, however it needed to make the leap, accommodate the consciousness of the subject. And so stylistically, it sounds like she's at least attempting to do something a little different. And maybe that's a separate question than this issue of representation or life representation. Yeah, I mean, certainly in the book that she's won the prize for, she sees that as a kind of mm, a kind of watershed moment in her own work. It's a different kind of novel to the ones that she's written before, where she feels as though she has come into something stylistically that she hadn't reached in her previous works. In a way, she's being her own critic there and describing what those works were. We don't actually know how that looked. We had some quite interesting editorial conversations where it went something along the lines of, is this actually how her novels were written or is she commenting on how her novels were written and do we need to change, you know, her syntax so that it's different enough from what she was writing or, or, you know, and so on. Yeah, I mean, she is a literary novelist, but she doesn't think of what she's doing in this book as being continuous with that creative endeavour in a way she's responding to that endeavour. But it, I guess I'm going to contradict myself now because there there is a linkage there between this issue of style and representation because she talks about the sentences are threaded through with double and triple thoughts. And that seems to me very descriptive of kind of a, a stream of consciousness type of writing and maybe in that way a little bit autobiographical or representational of her life as well. Mm. I mean, there is the insinuation at certain points that she has written a book that's very close to her life and that she has taken aspects of her life and incorporated that into the work for which she gets into some trouble at certain moments. I don't know exactly what she has written, to be honest. I mean, I don't have a kind of comprehensive idea of what that novel was that she's won the prize for. But there is a very strong sense for me in the creation of JB that however she tells her story now is in direct relation to the book that she wrote, that there is an inherent evolution between her coming into her own as a literary novelist and feeling that she has found a style that for her is a kind of deeply feminist mode of writing that she has been searching for and she's arrived at that point and then as if in response to that can now speak the truth of her life because she has found that voice. It's really interesting to be having all these conversations about her style and who she is as a writer, and which really reflects the the experience of reading the book because we you know we're constantly reminded that she is a writer, and in a way she has all these is tricks the right word she has all these things in her arsenal that she can. It feels like she either chooses to withdraw information or not give us the full story, or to she is hiding it from herself. And, you know, it's something that she can't look at. Can you tell us about generating that tension? Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. There are both of those things. There are certain parts of her story that she doesn't want to tell the reader or or there are certain parts of the story that she can't bring herself to acknowledge or that she just physically, in a, in a sense, can't verbalise them. There are all of those different threads Interestingly, in the early draft of this, it was an enormous chronological novel that basically started at the beginning of her life and went through. And Patrick occurred, you know, three quarters of the way into the book. And then we spent I, like years repeating those 
threads together and she started to become a very different kind of narrator. And those omissions, essentially, where she doesn't tell us something came in at a later point. That wasn't always the intention. That started to develop as part of the later understanding of who she was as a character. She knows she's trying to tell a story that is hard for her to tell. And she knows she's telling a story in which there are other people in her life that are implicated in that. And there is an element of protectiveness at certain points in terms of her family. I think the biggest thing for her in the the things that she leaves out is is not being able to acknowledge something crucial that has happened, not knowing how to reconcile herself to that event. I really enjoyed the ambiguities of the book. And I wanted to ask you, because I think that we see throughout the book some flashbacks where G- JB is thinking about or Lucy, I guess, is her real name, and she, she writes under the name JB. So maybe Lucy at this point is thinking about her childhood. And she had some pretty significant traumas uh, very early on. Her mother just kind of walks out on the family, and the body is never recovered, and they never find out what's happened to her. But I I didn't feel at any point that you were trying to tell a story really about repressed trauma or that you were looking for a way to explain her later actions as an adult. And I wanted to ask, was that a kind of a difficult line for for you to walk in writing her character? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yes, you're right. That was never the intention. As in, I didn't want this to be a book about her response to that early trauma. If anything, in terms of her character, I think she feels as though she's found a way of kind of navigating that by repeating that narrative over and over again in the different things she has written. It becomes clear in the novel that this is a story she returns to, but she doesn't seem to return to it out of a sense of ongoing suffering. It's kind of a narrative curiosity for her as to how did this happen and what happened and what do I make of it now? It's funny, in a way, it wasn't a difficult line to tread because I knew from the beginning that I really didn't want to do that. And I had, this is not so relevant, I mean, this is more relevant for um, my Australian readers, my second, sorry, my third novel, (laughs) Man Out of Time, which isn't published in the UK, was a novel that was very directly about childhood trauma and, and it was very hard to write and I never wanted to write another book like that ever again. So when I started this novel, although I knew what JB's background was, I wrote the book out of an overwhelming desire to write a book that felt really fun to write and that was as different as I possibly as it could possibly be from the book I'd written before that so it was never an issue it was never going to be a trauma narrative if anything that was just part of her life that she knew was there and didn't need to keep revisiting had somehow come to terms with that or or at least made that palatable by keeping it in a safe space within the context of her work I don't know if that answers your question fully, but... No, it did. And it answered another question that I had in my mind as well about, of course, I don't believe there's much autobiographical about this book for Stephanie Bishop, your life. But I was wondering whether you kind of like JB think of this latest novel as something quite different from anything that you've written before. Were you trying to break through and reach some artistic or very feminist point that you said that you were angry about the way that women novelists and writers and their work were represented. Yeah, I kind of feel as though everything I try 
to write, there is an attempt to write something as different as it can be from the last thing, much to the disappointment of publishers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so yes, yes, it did feel like a really different thing, but so did the book before that and so did the thing before that. I would be really bored if I thought I was writing a version of whatever I did last time, stylistically, thematically, whatever that was. There are some things I I think you kind of can't escape and you end up doing some aspect of the same thing, whether that's a a subject you can't avoid or a certain kind of style that is inherent. But on another level, yes, I did really want to do something different. I wanted to do something that felt quite energising. I was also writing most of this during lockdown with homeschooling and all of that stuff going on. So it had to be really immersive and intense and and fundamentally escapist for me. Uh, It had to be totalising to to kind of hold my attention when all that other kind of lockdown stuff was going on. There were several things that I did really want to do differently that I hadn't done before. And one was kind of working with plot in a way that I hadn't done in such a complex structural way previously. I'm still, I'm a really interested in plot. I find it enormously hard to do. And I feel like I'm kind of giving up on something if I don't actually try and work that out. The sentence level stylistic stuff feels easier to me it's something that will happen stylistically anyway but the plot is something I have to really construct so that felt quite new the gendering issues that's always been something I've been deeply interested in but I don't think I've given a character that kind of political agency before and I wanted JB to have that kind of agency and to be able to interrogate those experiences in the context of a story that was moving quite fast So there were formal challenges that I wanted to really grapple with in a way that I probably hadn't grappled with to the same extent in other works. I'm wondering if you did a lot of research or just in your reading life, there's so many examples about partners, women, of famous artists and the women's struggle to to gain some artistic authority, which J.B., talks about. Did you look at those while you were writing this book? <laughs> I don't think one needs to do any research for that. Really. <laughs> Probably you're right, sadly. <laughs> I mean, I, you see it everywhere. And I think that was the thing that really energized the work in its early stages was just how often you saw that narrative playing out, you know, publicly, but also in people that were closer and total bewilderment as to how how those situations arise and then how those situations you know become entrenched so no there was no research into that in any formal way other than nosiness um and hyper observation yeah we're not going to get any specifics on that (laughs) (laughs) no i i mean i will only say that i mean i guess in the context of of my life I've got two kids and my husband took over primary caring when they were quite small uh, for many reasons, but it it worked out that way. And I went back to to university work. You know, I mean, the reason I've been able to kind of write those books is because he was so prepared to take the kids and say, look, you go and do this. It's really important that you do this. And I was quite amazed by how rarely I saw that happening broadly and how surprised other people were when I said, oh, no, well, this is how it works out for us. But no, there were no actual um, case studies as such for this that were specific. It was a generalized phenomena that was very alarming to witness. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. A generalized phenomenon is, is a good description. Well, 
I can't think of a better book, Stephanie, to take to a sandy beach or a woodsy cabin and just just immerse yourself into it. It's a page turner, a great summer read. And I want to thank you for coming on to the show. And I want to encourage all of our listeners to go out to their local independent bookstore and purchase a copy of The Anniversary by Stephanie Bishop. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me.